Now, last week, I, I gave you some next steps. And I, I asked you to ask yourself this question, what am I zealous about? What am I zealous about? And pray over it. And whenever you pray, pray something like, Jesus, this gets me fired up and sometimes not fired up in a good way. How can I flip the script and use this for you? How can, how can you give me an opportunity to use the things that I feel so passionately about for you and, and use them in a good way? So, how'd that go? Did y'all forget? Again? Really? Awesome. Anybody try it? I'm not, I'm not going to ask you to even share, but did you try? Did you remember? Did you pray? Stay at it. Stay at it. Lord, give me another, give me another chance this week. The things that I'm zealous about, the things that get me fired up, the things that make me angry. Give me another chance this week to give that to you so that you can you can use it. So today. We're going to talk about the shadow dweller, the shadow dweller. I want to take a little bit of time today. Look at another disciple, a guy by the name of Andrew. And I want, to see, uh, I want us to look a little bit at, at who he was and what he did in the Gospels. Uh, talk a little bit about what makes him kind of a loser. And then give you some next steps to focus your thoughts and prayers during this upcoming week. The shadow dweller. Sounds kind of ominous, doesn't it? A shadow dweller. But it's not. It really, it's, it's kind of sad. Um, Shadow dwellers, these are not like the evil lurking shadow dwellers. These are like the kind of poor, pitiful shadow dwellers. Um, they, they, have, they have issues, guys like Andrew. What kind of issues? Well, they're silly issues, but Courtney, they're logical issues too. And, and they go kind of like this. And sometimes in next, we have this thing called transparent story time with Coop. And that's what this is going to be. Um, before Julia and I came to Grace Church about five years ago, we were pretty involved at our former church. And, and we did, guys, we did a lot of the same things there that we do here. We were involved in music, uh, involved in teaching, involved in leadership to a degree, um, church planning. And leaving there was a long process for us. Um, it, it took about three years. And during those three years, one of the thoughts that I personally struggled with was this nagging idea that God wanted to move me out of the way in order to do something greater, bigger, and better in that church. Like I was some type of obstacle. And I know that sounds silly, but thoughts like that are a, are a very disturbing reality in the minds of losers like me. To quote Dan, and, and this is pulling exactly from his book, he said, the loser's logic is simple. Knowing what I know about myself, why would God use me to do anything? When there are others who are far more qualified, far more prepared, and far more willing. So I thought, well, you know, maybe, maybe I need to get out of the way. And, and maybe if I try and stay, I'll be in the way of God, God 
wants to do. And y'all can call me nuts. It wouldn't be the first time, and it's probably not going to be the last time, but losers often see themselves as being on the fringe, being on the outside looking in, overshadowed by others who seem like they just have more gifts, they have more talent, they have more ability, they have more favor, they've had more opportunities. Even though the loser in question might have some degree of skill, might have some degree of ability, it always seems to be less than that of others. Just being transparent. And it's pretty common for losers to feel like their best chance of making a meaningful contribution is to ride the coattails of others who just shine brighter. Now, In my life, and probably in yours too, there are people I've been around who are gigantic shadow casters. They will remain anonymous. But people with this intangible thing called charisma. And they've got it just leaking out of their stinking pores. This room-filling presence that you just, you can't ignore. They... They're not loud, they're not overbearing, they're not obnoxious. They just just have a way and a, a gift with people that commands attention. And guys, I, I gotta admit, I have often plotted in the dark recesses of my mind, who do I have to kill to get that gift? And most of the time, Jesus steps in before I get very far down that road. And to be quite honest, I don't really think it works that way. But if others have more brains, if others have more charisma, if others have more talent and more magnetism than I do, then then maybe I'm just kind of superfluous. Maybe maybe I'm just kind of not needed. And the most helpful thing that I can do is get out of the way and let them do what they do. I mean, after all, it's one of the great American mantras. Lead, follow, or get out of the way. After all, why would God pick an average Joe? Let's make it personal. Why would God pick an average Jason to fill a position that others are far more qualified to fill? Why would he ask a self-conscious, nervous nobody to lead whenever there are literally scores of confident, unflappable personalities that are more willing and more capable? Why would God use the small, the timid, the ordinary When everyone's attention is just so naturally drawn to the large, the brave, and the spectacular. I don't know. But he does. He just does. And folks, as hard as I have tried up to this point in my 42, almost 43 years of life, I have to admit something to you. I still find myself incapable, Tanya, of figuring God out. 
I know that's hard for y'all to believe, but I still don't have it down. And of all of the disciples, maybe out of all the people in the Bible, perhaps this guy Andrew understood this better than anybody else. Because Andrew was a shadow dweller. He was a second fiddle. And true, Jesus chose him to join the disciples, but he was forever stuck in the shadow of one of these larger-than-life personalities. I am struggling with this water bottle right now. Be released in Jesus' name. But he was stuck within the shadow of of one of these larger-than-life personalities. I'm talking about, of course, his famous brother by the name of Peter. Simon Peter. The Rock Peter. The preached the big sermon on the day of Pentecost. Peter. That Peter. You know, every mention of Andrew in the Bible is phrased either Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, or worse, simply, Simon Peter's brother. It doesn't even call him by name in places. It just calls him by his brother's name. Think about this. How many sermons have you guys heard preached about Peter? Peter walked on the water. Peter got the revelation of Jesus' name. Peter was on the Mount of Transfiguration. Peter this, Peter that. How many Sunday school lessons have you heard about something that Peter did? Now, how many have you heard about Andrew? That many until today. Can you imagine the Apostle Peter simply being called Andrew's brother? The brother of Andrew. Hardly. Hardly. But in Scripture, they they had the same background. They had the same occupation. They had the same parents. They, They were fishermen. There's no mention in Scripture of any disadvantages that Andrew had. You know, that he didn't have a learning disability. I mean, there's nothing in there about that stuff. Nothing that would cause one brother to stand out above the other. No apparent skills beyond fishing. They were both working class guys. Scripture doesn't even mention which one was the older brother. You'll assume that it was Peter because he's so dominant, but that might not have been the case. We don't know. So what made Peter the dominant sibling? What made him the superstar and, you know, standout guy? I wonder how old Andrew was whenever he realized that he wasn't going to be the man and Peter was going to be. Because you know that happened. You know at some point he realized he's the one who gets all of the attention. And why would Jesus even feel like he needed Andrew if he's got Peter? I mean, he's got it all covered there, right? He's got the working class fisherman demographic pretty much locked up with Peter. Why does he need Andrew? For those of us who seek purpose while living in the shadows of others who shine more brightly... Andrew helps illuminate some of those questions. 
because his life reveals much about the, the very important work of the shadow dweller. Andrew has only three main scenes in Scripture, and we're going to look at two of these in detail and, and one not quite as much, but for those over there who are taking notes, three main scenes in Scripture with Andrew bringing Peter to Jesus. Somebody better answer your phone. Bringing the boy, who lo- bringing the boy with the loaves and the fish to Jesus and bringing the Greeks to Jesus. Anybody see a common theme there? In each case, he's introducing somebody to Jesus. So let's, let's look at this. Scene one. I think it's worth noting that, that the Gospels, they give different accounts of how Andrew and Peter met Jesus. Uh, in Matthew and Mark, Jesus calls them while they're together. But John gives us a little bit different insight. And I want us to see this in, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. And we're going to read this from the New Living Translation. It says, the following day, John was again standing with two of his disciples. And as Jesus walked by, John looked at him and declared, look, there is the Lamb of God. And when John's two disciples heard this, well, they dropped John like a bad habit and followed Jesus. And Jesus looked around and saw them following. And he said, what do you want? He asked them. They replied, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? Come and see, he said. It was about four o'clock in the afternoon when they went with him to the place where he was staying and they remained with him the rest of the day. Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, was one of these men who heard what John said and then followed Jesus. So Andrew was one of these two disciples of John that is now following Jesus. And Andrew went in verse 41 to find his brother Simon and told him, we have found the Messiah, which means Christ. Then Andrew brought Simon to meet Jesus. This blows my mind. Peter, with all of his stories, with all of his antics, with all of his speeches, with all of his drama. I'll never deny you, Lord. I'll die with you. Oh, I don't even know the man three times and the rooster crows. No, I got to go. All of his mess. And it's because of Andrew, the second fiddle brother. That Peter meets Jesus in the first place. To quote that sage from the Weather Channel video during the flood, y'all think about it. Y'all think about it. Scene two. The next time Andrew appears, he is again acting as an education. We call it the facilitator. It's a nice way of saying helper. Not the man, the helper. He's he's helping somebody else be the man is what Andrew's doing. John chapter six, verses five through 13. Again, from the New Living Translation says Jesus soon saw a huge crowd of people coming to look for him and turning to Philip. He asked, where can we buy bread to feed all these people? And he was testing Philip for he already knew what he was going to do. And Philip replied, even if we work for months, we wouldn't have enough money to feed them. Then Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, spoke up. There's a young boy here with five barley loaves and two fish, but what good is that with this huge crowd? 
Tell everyone to sit down, Jesus said. So they all sat down on the grassy slopes. The men alone numbered about 5,000. Then Jesus took the loaves, gave thanks to God, and distributed them to the people. Afterward, he did the same with the fish. And they all ate as much as they wanted. After everyone was full, Jesus told his disciples, Now gather the leftovers so that nothing is wasted. So they picked up the pieces and filled 12 baskets with scraps left by the people who had eaten from the five barley loaves. Again, guys, notice the contrast between Andrew and Philip. In response to Jesus' question, Philip, this, this is the bean counter. This is the accountant, the number cruncher. This is the spreadsheet maker. Mr. Pocket Protector. Philip makes this, this quick mental calculation and lets everybody know the enormity of the situation. Whoa, Jesus just, just, whoa, whoa, all of the whoa. Because we could work for half a year, all of us, we still wouldn't have enough money to give everybody even one bite. That's how serious this is. In the, in the NIV and, and the New Living Translations and maybe others, I didn't look them all up, so forgive my laziness, but Philip's number crunching outburst is made with an exclamation point. Andrew, however, his reply merits a mere question mark. Do y'all know people like that? People who make everything a question? Even when making a point, they do it with a certain interrogative uncertainty? Even it's like say maybe a good idea sorta maybe you know y'all got it andrew says here is a boy with, smive, with, with here is a boy with five small barley loaves and two small fish but how far will they go among so many question mark so among the disciples, it appears that Andrew, watch this, has even less charisma and force of personality than the bean-counting, spreadsheet-making, accounting Philip. Now, folks, that's saying something. But I have to wonder, would that little boy have offered his lunch to any other disciple? Would that little boy have offered his lunch to any other disciple? Maybe. But maybe not. You know. But what matters in the end is that Andrew brought somebody else to Jesus. Andrew did it. Not Peter, not even Philip, the accountant. Andrew brought that little boy to Jesus. And the rest of the passage reveals the miracle that followed that. Feeding of 5,000 people. Scene three. Andrew's third scene is whenever this group of Greeks asked to see Jesus in John 12. And I'm not going to read the passage in, in the interest of time today, but in it, 
these Greeks ask Philip for an audience with Jesus. We, we want to see Jesus. And so Philip, in turn, goes to Andrew. He says, these Greeks want to see Jesus. And so Andrew, in turn, goes to Jesus and says, these Greeks want to see you. And by the time the story is done, there's this crowd of people listening to Jesus and they're hearing what sounds like thunder and they're telling other people that they heard angels speaking to them. And Jesus is there and he is laying it down. He is speaking truth and he's prophesying about himself. And you look at the, the ripples of impact from Andrew's introductions of other people to Jesus. Peter is presented in the book of Acts as one of the greatest leaders of the church, standing up to the very Jewish leaders that had crucified Jesus days before, and he's preaching to thousands of people all throughout Israel and all throughout Palestine. Then you've got this little boy with a little lunch, and he's known throughout history as one of the playing a part in one of the greatest miracles that Jesus did. We don't know what happened to him. But I can guarantee you, he never forgot that day. He got a lot of fish and chips off of that story. Buy me lunch and I'll tell you about the time Jesus took my lunch. and That's what I would have done anyway. And those Greeks, those Greeks must have talked to everybody about that time that they met Jesus and they heard thunder and angelic voices. All of these impacts in people's lives took place because Andrew, Andrew, Simon Peter's brother, second fiddle, shadow dwelling Andrew, stepped back and introduced other people to Jesus. And Andrew, he may not have had Peter's power to evangelize these huge crowds and hold their attention, but he's got the power to motivate Peter to meet, to meet Jesus in the first place. And Peter, you need to come meet this guy. We, we found the Messiah. And he may not have the power himself to feed 5,000 people, but he has the power to make a little boy feel safe enough to put his hand in his and give him his lunch. And Andrew may not have had the power to convert a bunch of polytheistic, arrogant Greeks to the gospel. But he's got the power to make a group of Gentiles feel welcome. Whenever there's a lot of other disciples in the group that would have shunned them because they weren't Jews. Shadow dwelling Andrew did all of that guys our head football coach at school he is a big personality if the apostle Peter had been a football coach he'd have been this guy Swear words and all. Brett is the epitome of football. He's, he's a huge frame. I mean, he fills up the door whenever he walks in. Chest is like this thick. Like this way. Shaved head, got the sculpted beard. and 
he looks like he would be just as home or just as just at just as at home in a in a viking helmet with a sword and a shield pillaging villages as he is standing on the sidelines coaching football i mean we're talking like level 5 alpha male stuff played division 1 football in college played in the nfl for 2 years linebacker of course uh, and, and he's a natural leader. He is. He's a natural leader. He knows how to take something and just make it go. And he knows how to take people and push them and make them better and make them like him while he does it. People, people notice him whenever he walks into a room. Um, when he speaks, people listen. And if you ask him a question, you better be willing to hear the truth. He calls himself the truth master. He knows. And I'm telling you about our head football coach because he's a, he's a big personality. And Andrew, the guy that we've been talking about, is the direct opposite of our head football coach. And some of you have probably paid more attention to what I've said about Brett Beard than what I've said about Andrew. Because in Scripture, Andrew doesn't have fans. People aren't making t-shirts about, about Andrew. He doesn't reduce grown women to giggling puddles. He doesn't walk around slapping guys on the back and calling them babe. He doesn't make, Andrew doesn't make everybody feel good for having just been in, been in his presence. Andrew doesn't have that effect on people. But he is safe. He is trustworthy. And he is approachable. And Scripture bears it out three times. Guys, get this part. If you don't get anything else, people who want to see Jesus are attracted to this guy, Andrew. Wouldn't it be awesome if the same thing could be said about every single one of us? Think about the other shadow dwellers who have sparked great movements and miracles. Y'all remember Billy Graham? What about Mordecai Ham? You remember Mordecai Ham? The shadow dwelling preacher who introduced Billy Graham to Jesus? Billy Graham prayed in an altar and received Jesus, whatever they do in that theology, after a sermon that Mordecai Ham preached. Remember C.S. Lewis? Well, do you remember Charles Williams? An accomplished writer in his own right, but he's the one who mentored C.S. Lewis. Who mentored and discipled Martin Luther? John Wesley. John Edwards, Martin Luther King Jr. Every one of them had a shadow-dwelling, second-fiddle mentor in their lives who helped them along in their journeys. Andrew, he reveals this pattern throughout Scripture and throughout history that somewhere behind every great spiritual leader, there's usually a spiritually sensitive shadow-dweller. The composer, a great composer, Leonard Bernstein, he put it this way, and I quote, he said, I can get plenty 
of first violinists. But to find someone who plays second violin with as much enthusiasm, now that's a problem. And yet, if no one plays second, we have no harmony. Shadow dwellers. Second fiddle. Andrew. So guys, my next step for you this week is as clear-cut, to the point, as I can make it. I want you to be Andrew this week. I want you to pray for it. I want you to look for it. I want you to introduce one person to Jesus. Just lead one person to Jesus. I'm not talking about going out and knocking on some stranger's door and evangelizing. I'm not talking about going to Winn-Dixie and setting up a Bible study box. I'm talking about whenever that moment, that little window, that little door, Tommy, of, of conversation opens. Man, I don't know what I'm going to do this week. I've got so much going on in my life. The kids going crazy. We've got work all this overtime here at work. I'm so strapped for time. Man, I know exactly how you feel. If I didn't have Jesus helping me, I don't know what I'd do. Just introduce him into somebody's life. It doesn't have to be a big spectacle. You don't have to preach him a sermon like Peter did. Just introduce him to Jesus. Just mention Jesus to somebody. Dwell in that shadow this week. Dwell in his shadow. Done. Questions? Comments? Yes, ma'am. Thank you. Thank Daniel Hochalter. He wrote a great book. Thanks, Sister Murph. Um, let's pray. Lord, sometimes I feel like just such a shadow dweller in second fiddle. And um, there's so many other things that I want to be and so many other things that I wish I could do better. Things that I see in other people. And I even wonder, you know, well, what kind of chance do I have? What, what kind of purpose do I have? But you've called all of us. You've made every single one of us a part of the body. And ultimately, Lord, it's not another person's shadow that we live in, but it's the gigantic shadow that you cast through your love and through such incredible sacrifice that we live in. So, Lord, I pray for every single one of these people in this room today. That whatever complexes, whatever kind of issues, whatever self-confidence stuff they struggle with. Lord, this week, let them dwell not in the shadow of an older brother, an older sister, or some type of mentor. But let them dwell in your shadow. And I pray that you would open the door in their conversation and in their interactions this week. That they can be Andrew and lead somebody to in Jesus' name.
Amen.